to, I would like to finish uh, the churches tonight in Revelation 2 and 3. This is part 2. If you missed last week, we did part 1 of the church in Laodicea. Go ahead and start recording just to let you know. Also be praying with us. We are in need of a custodian. Uh, my wife would always fill in between and she is not physically able to do that. And so uh, as of the first of as of the first of uh, February, we need someone uh, part-time. It's up to six hours a week. And uh, be praying about that with us as well. We need someone for that. And then um, uh, I'll be referring to this book tonight. It's from Steve Gallagher, and it's called Intoxicated with Babylon. Uh, anything that Steve writes is powerful. It's cutting. It's truth. Uh, if you know who he is, Pure Life Ministries. Uh, but... Uh, he has a lot of great books out there, but I'm going to referring to this. He has a whole chapter in this book on Laodicea, and it's interesting. I like to read those kind of things, and, and uh, anyway, so I'll refer to that tonight as well. And so let's get going tonight. Last week, I, I closed out last week in our Bible study talking about how God does prosper His people, but also we have to always be on guard in our hearts, in our spirits, because prosperity has a, it can be a huge potential deadly trap. In other words, as I said and closed with last week, it's not wrong to have stuff, but make sure stuff doesn't have you. Uh, even Jesus says, you know, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then also in Luke chapter 12, 21, Jesus said this is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. And so our goal needs to be constantly being rich toward God. And so really in, in the study here, in the seventh church to those in Asia Minor, Jesus makes a distinction between the natural and the spiritual when it comes to this matter of riches. We'll talk more about that tonight. But always be on guard because uh, wealth can become, before you know it, the main focus of a person's life. Uh, I've had people in this church years ago um, that left the church and says, I want to become a millionaire. When I become a millionaire, then I'll serve God. Uh, ran into them about a year and a half ago, and to my recollection, they are still not currently serving God, even though they've made the money and, and perhaps have become millionaires. All right. Um, but anyway, the church in Laodicea, you recognize, that had become very wealthy and gradually deceived herself into thinking that gain equaled godliness, 1 Timothy 6, verse 5. And, and really, the church here derived, uh, uh, the life of the church was derived from its abundance of the possessions. Uh, just quickly reviewing here, Laodicea was known for three things, you recall. Number one was wealth, very wealthy, very wealthy, prosperous city. Matter of fact, when the earthquake hit it and they had to rebuild, they didn't rely on any government assistance. They were able just to pay cash for it and do it themselves. And so Laodicea boasted of its wealth, not only in the city, but the church as well. Laodicea was known, secondly, for its uh, wool industry, its garment industry. They had a certain kind of black wool that they manufactured. And then it was also noted, thirdly, for its medicine. Specifically, it was, it was exporting ISAV that was used throughout the world. It was the headquarters for the export industry of ISAV. And those three characteristics come into play then when Jesus says, buy of me gold 
and, and white raiment and so. And, and, uh, and we looked at last week as well the character of Christ, point one on your outline, where Jesus says to the angel, Revelation 3.14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Uh, first of all, he is the amen, the idea of firmness, certainty, assurance of faith that declares or guarantees the truth. As a title of Jesus being the amen, it indicates his sovereignty. It, uh, it, cert- it is certainly of, of the fulfillment of his promises. And so really what Jesus is saying, calling himself the amen, is, is I, when I speak, I have the final word. You know, whatever he says goes, it's not what we say. And what he says is true, it's trustworthy. Uh, he is the secondly faithful and true witness. Talked about that last week as well. Uh, basically, Jesus was faithful and true in contrast to the church in Laodicea that was neither faithful nor true. In other words, Jesus is what the church in Laodicea is not. And then he is the ruler of God's creation. Literally, the word, the word ruler means the source. He is the source of God's creation. He is the beginning, the origin, the first cause, the ruler of the creation of God. And he is the beginning and the end and everything in between. As it says in Revelation 1.8, he is the Alpha and the Omega. You know, uh, Revelation 1.17, I am the first and last, he said. And so as Jesus continues to address this church in Laodicea, as has been his customary practice, he often moves in from the description of himself and then gives a word of, of, of commendation to commend them for certain qualities. Well, the church in Laodicea, there was no word, there is no word of commendation. Uh, are there things right with this church? Maybe so, but we're not told if there are. Are, they, are there things wrong with this church? Oh yeah, <laughs> we'll get into that tonight looking at the condemnation. Uh, but this church, keep in mind, was a part of the body of Christ. Uh, she was still included among the seven candlesticks, which, which the Lord was uh, walking among and such. And so really the lesson for us is, is you know, anyone naming the name of Jesus Christ should not uh, dogmatically oppose what Christ himself is committed to restoring. In verse 19 You'll recall Jesus referred to the believers here as those whom I love. He still loves the church. And one of the things we're going to see tonight is that, yes, he loves the church, and yes, he has interest in restoring the church and having, having fellowship once again with the church. Bottom line is, Jesus Christ has not given up on the church as backslidden or as lukewarm as it was, and neither should we. Uh, you might know backslidden Christians. You might know backslidden people. Don't give up on them because God hasn't yet. God is still on the throne of grace. He's still on the throne of mercy. And yes, Bill, you said yes, but yeah. But because you have, you have loved ones. I have loved ones. We all have people that we know that are not serving God that one time used to serve God. Let's keep on believing God for them and for our families. So with that attitude in mind, let's evaluate tonight what was wrong with God's people in Laodicea, looking at point three then, his condemnation. And his condemnation is found in verses 15, 16, and 17. And it really was twofold. That's why I kind of completed the outline for you. But reading verses 15, 16, and 17, Jesus says, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. 
So because you are lukewarm, neither cold, hot nor cold, I am about to spit you, vomit you, or spew you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But don't you realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? And so really the indictment was twofold. First of all, that of lukewarmness, but secondly, that of false confession or, or having a false perception. I, brief, I briefly addressed the second condition last week, and we'll cover that a little bit more tonight. Uh, I, I just came across this old proverb today. When a person tells his own story, he always makes sure it's of himself. And, and that's kind of what was going on here with Laodicea. You know, in their own eyes, they were kind of like arrogant and proud. And it's like, we're wealthy, we don't need a thing. And they didn't realize their own true spiritual condition. And so the Laodiceans considered themselves to be wealthy and need of nothing. And yet, uh, it was just the opposite in the eyes of God. Now, I can imagine a person that would attend this church. Maybe they were decked out in high fashion, very much in vogue, in vogue, and yet Jesus, on the other hand, sees her as a blind pauper, as filthy, as disheveled, and scantily clad in, in rags. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but don't you realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? No doubt in the mind of this local church, uh, you know, they, they had some fine attributes as I said last Wednesday, that on the outside, I could possibly be impressed with this church. I mean, the fact that it had need of nothing would suggest to me that maybe they had an impressive building with an impressive organization and impressive finances. I mean, this is the way a church ought to run. It was in need of nothing. I warn us as a church, uh, we had an incredible financial year last year. If you were here the first of the year and saw in the bulletin, that we had over $100,000 surplus last year. That's incredible. As I told the board Monday night, that necessarily won't always be that way, okay? But also be, be paying attention because I don't want to get to the place where we say, well, God, we got this. We can do without you. We can't do without him. We need him. We can do nothing apart from him. And so uh, just kind of a, a check in our spirit just because, you know, we're, we're doing well financially as a church and have since COVID, you know, I don't understand all that. Um, haven't taken up an offering in the boxes back there, the, ba the basket that was back there, everything else, and it's kind of dumbed that down a little bit in a sense. But uh, um, thank God for his blessing. But, but it, let's not become self-satisfied. That's what I'm saying. And so it's, I'm simply saying it's easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that what looks impressive to outsiders, even the world, doesn't look impressive to God. How many know that God's ways are way above our ways, all right? Uh, uh, and so what man says has no bearing with God. Uh, our opinions don't matter. It doesn't matter what we say, it's what he says. And I thought, what a contrast with Smyrna and Laodicea. Laodicea says, I have need of nothing and needs everything. Smyrna, the Lord says, hey, you guys are dirt poor, but you're rich. And so do you see how different God sees things the way man sees things? Now, going, going to, to a quote in Steve Gallagher's book, and it's, it's entitled Intoxicated with Babylon in the chapter Living Like Kings. He says, the desire to get ahead is one of the strongest passions in the heart of man. 
covetousness which compels this drive is so powerful that Paul equates it to idolatry because it is in essence the worship of possessions. The problem is not so much a love for the actual money itself, but for the objects of desire it acquires. The appetite drives people without their giving it a second thought. Nevertheless, it would be very wise for every child of God to give it serious attention and thoroughly examine their own hearts. The devotion to money is extremely dangerous because it causes people to wander away from the faith. And then Steve Gallagher asked this question, how many American Christians have completely wandered away from a vibrant faith in Christ and yet are clueless about their own spiritual condition? So, so true. Friends, that is Laodicea. You see, prosperity, if we're not careful, can blind a person to their true spiritual condition. I like this quote from John Wesley. Discussing this deceitfulness of riches, he said, Deceitful indeed, speaking of riches, for they smile and betray, kiss and smite into hell. They put out the eyes, they harden the heart, they steal away all the life of God, fill the soul with pride, anger, love of the world, men are make men enemies to the whole cross of Christ, and all the while are eagerly desired and vehemently pursued even by those who believe there is a God. That was from John Wesley, preacher of yesteryear. Steve Gallagher continues in his book, Intoxicated Babylon. The greatest lie of prosperity is its ability to make people believe they are walking with the Lord when in reality they have long drifted away from Him in their hearts. Like, this is what he says, like the Laodiceans in Revelation 3, they imagine their spiritual lives are going very well. But Jesus sees, sees things much differently. The greed of materialism has eaten away their spiritual substance. To Jesus, they look like children whose stomachs are bloated, not because they are full, because they are dying of starvation. In the end, they will discover that they have pierced themselves with many griefs, as Paul said to Timothy. And so the Laodiceans had this false conception, this false Con, you know, confession, this, this false perception. We'll come back to that later. Let's talk tonight about lukewarmness, where Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. We'll talk about that tonight. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold, hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And so the Laodiceans here were half committed, half-hearted, complacent, lethargic, self-satisfied, indifferent, neutral, tepid, lacking conviction. One foot in and one foot out. This was the lukewarm church. What was missing in Laodicea really was their passion. The, the passion to press on to greater intimacy and knowledge of God. See, God was no longer their life or their love. Oh, they knew about him, but they didn't know him. Ask them how much time they spent pursuing him, and they would likely consider you a religious fanatic. After all, we've grown accustomed to believing that as long as our sins for, are forgiven, that's all that's necessary. See, here's the, here's the problem, though, as we approach the end of this age. Jesus is not coming back to fulfill the role of some heavenly conductor 
walking through the church, checking that we have the correct ticket in order to make the journey we call the rapture. God forbid. As a church, we must awaken to the reality that the Christian life is more than some divine fire insurance policy. Rather, it is the beginning of an intense, passionate relationship with the living God himself. The new birth is not an end, but just the very beginning of an ever-progressive and exciting relationship with the one and only true and living God. In terms of natural birth, a baby emerges from a dark, a world of darkness into a world of light and thus begins to grow in knowledge and understanding. Likewise, the child of God is taken from a world of spiritual darkness into the glorious light of God's kingdom. The center of this kingdom is, is one other than the king himself. The new birth not only brings us into this kingdom, but we now belong to the very family of God itself, the very family of the king. We become not only one of his subjects, but we actually become one of his children. The king becomes our father. And as our understanding increases, we begin to realize what an incredible privilege it is to know the king himself. Through this glorious relationship, we begin to grasp the reality that we were created for something greater than the world of self. We were created by him and we are created for him. By him and for him. And unless we as Christians grasp this revelation, we will not experience the changed perspective that alone can revise our view about ourselves as believers and the lives that we are to live. This alone can cure our lukewarmness. Church, we are created to enjoy fellowship with God himself. So the Laodicean Sheehan Church here is perhaps best known for its lukewarmness. Now, quick question, when is lukewarmness better than cold or hot? A couple of examples, take a baby's bottle. You don't want it too hot. You don't want it too cold. You want it at just the right temperature, maybe lukewarm. Or perhaps living in a moderate climate. Uh, as, as exposed to one where it's extremely hot, like it is here in the summertime, or cold like it is in the Midwest in the wintertime. I know that the more birthdays I have, the warmer I tend to like it. Anybody else there? All right. Uh, we turned just last week. I, I, I'm, we, we keep our thermostat set at 70. And I don't know if it's because I turned 60 last fall or not, but I just turned it up, and now it's programmed to 72 at night when I'm there because I'm chilly, and I'm tired of putting blankets on. I wear sweats. I wear a sweatshirt. I put a T-shirt underneath that. It's just my, metab my metabolism is changing or whatever. The older I get, the warmer I want it. Uh, just a few, about a month ago, I told Jill, because everything, all these thermostats, we have 24 units in this building, and so 24 thermostats. Uh, they were set on 68. I'm going, that's too cold. I want it 70. Now it's 70. It's a little bit nicer, all right? Anyway, so when it comes to the matter of relationships, however, lukewarm is the last thing a lover wants from his or her beloved. Lukewarm, mediocre, average, and neutral are not types of expressions one wants to hear, especially regarding the one they are about to marry. For example, Solomon shares what I consider to be the Old Testament counterpart to the church in Laodicea. 
In Solomon's wonderful book, The Song of Solomon, he tells at the beginning of the relationship, this lover could not get enough of him being her friend and lover. She begins expressing her longing to be kissed by him in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. Beloved, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. And so the bride has found all the answers to her needs in her beloved. As the story in the Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs goes, we see their relationship deepening over the course of the following chapters. But then we come to chapter 5, and the, to- the story takes a little twist. The bride has gone asleep for the night, when without warning, her beloved appears, desiring to be with her. She hears him knocking, but fails to respond, thinking to herself, this is not the best time, I'm clean, I'm comfortable, I'm tired. Her lack of responsiveness causes him to be grieved and disappointed, and so he withdraws, leaving her alone. Eventually, she rouses herself from sleep and recognizes the mistake that she made. She gets out of bed to open the door, only to discover he's no longer there. Thankfully, she comes to her senses and immediately begins searching for him. Well, the segment of the story that I find so similar to the passage in Revelation chapter 3 is the part where she's in bed. She says to herself, I've taken off my dress, I've washed my feet. In other words, this is not a dirty bride here, but rather one who knows that she is clean. Her cleanness, though, has given place to complacency. She's clean, but she's also comfortable. How many Christians today could be, could be described as being clean and yet they are comfortable? We're clean. We've been washed by the blood of Christ. We've shut off the old clothes of self-righteousness by acknowledging our need for a Savior. We've experienced the washing of regeneration, but we soon settle down. We are comfortable in the fact that we are now right with God and we can testify about God's goodness in our lives. We soon become regular customers at the house of God and we can look back at our former lives as being spiritually dead or cold. But wait, that's the situation that we find in Laodicea. The Laodiceans, though clean and comfortable, had become stagnant in spirit. They had settled into a lifestyle of church attendance fellowship, and other aspects of church life. In other words, they bought into a Christian subculture just as many have today. The word translated lukewarm is chileros, C-H-I-L-A-R-O-S, and it refers to tepid water. Jesus here is speaking of three spiritual states or temperatures, and everyone tonight will find themselves in one of these states. Tonight, you're either hot, you're either cold, or you're, or you're lukewarm. First of all, cold. If you're cold, you're totally unmoved. The gospel of Christ arouses no interest or spiritual fervor. You're unaffected. You're not moved to enthusiasm. You're dead. You're detached. You're not a part of. You have never been warmed. You are still in your sins and trespasses. You are cold. You are away from God cold, number one. Number two is hot. Hot means boiling, fervent, passionate. The word is used in Acts 18.25 where he, Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with, here's the word, great fervor. It means he spoke with a glowing, boiling, 
passionate, holy fire. His heart was set aflame. There was zeal for God. The Greek word is zestos. Ardent, zealous, fervid, boiling hot. Romans 12, 11 also uses a form of this word. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. There it is, your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. The complete biblical library commentary says to lack this is what Jesus calls a lukewarm condition. And so spiritual fervor, speaking with great fervor. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, speaking of the last days, the love of most will grow cold. Will grow cold. Solomon chapter uh, 8, verse 6 and 7, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. And then in Luke 24, one of my favorite passages along with others, but it's the two disciples, Cleopas and another unnamed disciple, who on, Christ, or on Easter Sunday night are, are making a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to, to Emmaus. And, and after Jesus, he appeared to them on the way. You know the story. He appeared to them on the way. They didn't recognize him. It, their eyes were, were restrained or holding from, from recognizing him. And Jesus began to talk to them all the things in the Scripture concerning themselves. Well, when they got to Emmaus, you know, they said that. They said this. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the way, on the road, and opened the scriptures to us? Burning of heart still happens today because you and I spend time in his presence with him along the way and in his word. All right. The, you know, those who are described as hot are those who show genuine spiritual fervor and they, know, they leave no question to the presence of eternal life. So we have cold, we have hot, and then we come to the condition of the church in Laodicea, that being lukewarm. Jeremy Taylor, in his sermon of lukewarmness and zeal, urges well that this is the lukewarm, not as a transitional state, but as a final state, which is thus the object of the Lord's, of the Lord's displeasure. He says, in feasts of sacrifices, the ancients sometimes drank hot drink and sometimes they're poured cold upon their gravies or their wines, but no service of tables or altars were ever lukewarm. According to Jameson Fawcett Brown's commentary on this passage, physicians used lukewarm water to cause vomiting. Cold and hot drinks were common at feasts, but never lukewarm. There was also, if you do the study on this, in this area, there was also hot and cold springs near Laodicea. And so Jesus is therefore rebuking this church and said, guys, I wish you were one or the other. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say it's better to be cold than lukewarm? Why is it better for a person to have no commitment whatsoever to Christ then, you know, then, then for him to be lukewarm. You know, why would that be? We, we, we've heard the sayings today, well, a little is better than none at all. Or be thankful for the little you have. Back when I was growing up, there was a commercial on TV for burl cream. A little dab will do you. How many remember that? That means you're old like me. 
A little dab, my friends, will not do you when it comes to Christianity. Because if Jesus is worth anything, he is worth everything. He is Lord of all or not at all. Being a Christian means he's not even number one on your list. He is your list. He's your list. We hear, well, come to Jesus and he'll meet your needs. Yes, he will. He will meet your need for salvation because we're all sinners in need of a Savior. But that is only the beginning. Once he meets our need for salvation, what about us meeting his need of obedience? You know, his need of doing what he's commanded us. What about us meeting his need to live our lives, not to please ourselves, but for his pleasure? We are made by him and for him. See, this is what it means to love him. And if we, if we, love, if we love him, he says, you'll obey me. Now, I believe the reason Jesus said this is because a cold person is sensitive to his need more than a lukewarm person. A cold person knows they need more clothing. They know they need a blanket or some slippers or whatever. And so the indictment is that the church here lost their sense of need of him. They had it all, so they thought. False confession, false perception. A lukewarm person simply doesn't realize his or her need. I wonder today how many people are in hell who once thought they were on their way to heaven. Think about it. Enough religion to make them think they were okay. Many people who profess Christ attend church even today enough to only ease their conscience enough to make them feel good about themselves. And they say, well, God won't reject me. God won't send me to hell. God is love, and God loves everybody, right? And so they are simply basing their eternity on what they say, what they perceive, what they confess, what they think. Friends, once again, and I've said this over and over again in all seven letters, it's not what we say that matters, it's what he says is what matters the most. All right? Jesus completely contradicts the profession of many religious people today as he did back then, and guess what? He hasn't changed. He says that all the half-hearted, half-committed, and lukewarm church members in the world would be far better off if they made no profession of all than to make a profession and not live up to it. As Leonard Ravenhill says in his writings, there are many professors, few possessors. Many profess Christianity, few actually possess it. So being self-satisfied, feeling comfortable and respected in one's religion is the worst state imaginable for a person. That's why, and and think about this way, the hardest people to reach with the gospel today are those who think they are okay because they, they attend church once in a while or they perhaps became a member of a church and they say they're a Christian. Friends, I got news for you. Religion will damn your soul. 
Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger or going to college makes you smart or, or, or whatever. It's all about relationship. And so what was missing in Laodicea what is what is missing in so many people today, that being a relationship, a living, growing love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Laodicea, we see Christ standing on the outside of a closed door longing to be invited in. His bride, the church, however, is oblivious to his knocking, choosing rather to find her fulfillment in the life from the varied activities she has produced for herself. How tragically the church today paralyzed Laodicea in almost every way. Because today, more than ever, we have learned how to excel without the abiding presence of God in our midst. Churches today have slick marketing techniques, professional staff, and motivational speakers, and they are pretty much able to operate without God. As someone wisely said, if the Holy Spirit were to be withdrawn from the earth today, most churches would never realize he was gone. They would continue on religion as usual. Perhaps one of the saddest comments regarding the Laodicean church is that they believed they had need of nothing. God help us if we ever get to a place where we say, God, I got this, I don't need you. Because you are then, uh, become, you are then lukewarm. Uh, this, this simply reveals the degree of blindness and deception which had come upon these believers. There's also, as I mentioned, uh, there's a sense of, of pride expressed in these words and arrogance in these words. We have need of nothing. The Laodiceans were able indeed to operate uh, not, not realizing how self-sufficient they had become. And I have to ask the question, friends, are we hearing are we listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church today? Because Christianity is not hanging around the cross, it's getting on the cross. Christianity is not saying, well, my name's on a membership roll somewhere, I preach behind the pulpit, I sing in the choir, or I teach a Sunday school lesson. Christianity is dying to self. If self has died and self has been crucified with Christ, why in God's name do we resurrect our old selves back to life so often? Why do we insist on our will being done instead of his will being done? John Wolverd says in his commentary, it's apparent that there is something about the intermediate state of being lukewarm that is utterly obnoxious to God. Far more helpful is the state of one who has been untouched by the gospel and makes no pretense of putting his trust in Christ than the one who makes some profession, but by his life illustrates that he has not really honored the Christ whose gospel he has heard and professed. There is no one further from the truth in Christ than the one who makes an idle profession without real faith. And then he continues on. The church at Laodicea constitutes a sad picture of much of the professing church in the world throughout the history of the Christian era and serves as an illustration of those who participate in the outer religious worship without the inner reality. And then Wolverd asks these questions. How many have outwardly conformed to the requirements of the church without its true state of being born again into the family of God? I'm here to tell you, I was going to church for 20 years, going to hell. 
going to church, going to hell. How many church members are far from God, yet by their membership in the professing church have satisfied their own hearts, he asks, and have been lulled into a sense of false security? And then he continues on, one more paragraph. In the history of the human race, no one has seen or no one has been harder to reach for Christ than the religionist, the one who is quite satisfied with the measure of his devotion to God with the times with, which to him represent religion. Far easier to win are the harlots and publicans than the Pharisees and the Sadducees, end quote. Wow, that's that's powerful preaching from John Wolverd. And so Jesus' indictment was that they were lukewarm, and he says, I'm about to spit you, vomit you out of my mouth. That which makes Christ sick is a lukewarm church. In other words, he's saying, church, Laodicea, I'm ready to do this and will do this unless you repent. I love you, he says, but I'm challenging you and I'm calling you to repentance. And then he's saying, basically, my response to you now hinges on your response to me. And it was very graphic language in Revelation 3. But it's used for a purpose, and that purpose was Jesus Christ was trying to get their attention and let them know that he was serious. Now, lukewarmness, false confession. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing. Their perception of what they were disagreed 180 degrees, differed completely with the Lord's perception. Now, let me ask you a few questions. If you, saw, if you saw a blind person, do you want to strike out at them in anger? No. If you see someone who does not have many clothes because they are too poor, do you want to get angry with them? No. Do you see someone who is poor and begging alms? Do you get angry with that person? No, not if you're filled with compassion. See, the Lord's words in verse 17 strike me as compassionate words where he's saying, if you only knew what you're really like if you only knew your true spiritual condition. And the Lord is moved with profound sorrow and in essence is saying, you really don't know, do you? You really don't know how wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked that you really are. And so the Lord calls us to personal fellowship that we might have introspection and evaluation which is necessary to grow spiritually. Let's look at his counsel. And on the counsel there, you can see I wrote some things down and typed them out for you. First of all, he invites them to buy of him gold, refined in the fire, white raiment, or clothing in ISAV. He calls the church to repent. He longs to have fellowship with them. And then he tells them to hear what the Spirit is saying. So first of all, the Lord speaks words of correction to this, to this church in verses 18 through 20. Always keep in mind that whenever the Lord rebukes you and calls you to correction, he always shows you a way out. In other words, he's going to be hard at times, but it's always with, hey, there's a way out here. There's grace and there's mercy here. And so he calls us, verse 18, to a new dependence upon him. And he says to them, I counsel thee to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may be rich white garments to clothe you to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may be seen. In other words, 
What was Laodicea known for? It was known for banking and wealth, number one. It was known for clothing and wool, number two. And it was known for ISAF. And so what was Jesus say, saying to them? He says, buy from me gold refined in the fire. In other words, true spiritual riches. Remember, Laodicea was a banking center and a manufacturing center. And he says, buy from me white raiment, clothing, the righteousness of Christ. You know, are your wedding garments prepared? And then I salve so you can truly see. So basically, summing this up, he's saying, guys, you're noted for your wealth. Buy from me gold that has been refined by fire, which cannot be taken away. You're noted for your wool, your black wool. Buy from me the white garments of righteousness, which I can give. You're noted for your eye salve. How about getting some eye salve from me so you can truly see what I see? Really see yourselves as I want you to see yourselves. In other words, the answer to the church's lukewarmness and false confession is not to engage in a whole lot of new effort to maximize its programs, to increase its facilities, and increase its treasury. What the Lord tells it to do is, come back to me. Come back to me. Come back and enter into fellowship with me. And when you're back in fellowship with me, then you can see the task at hand. And so he's calling this church, he's calling every church to a new dependence on him. In other words, stop depending on yourself. He's saying, I'm your source. And he is calling in verses 19 to 20 for a decisive ongoing response to his love. For he says, those whom I love, I reprove, I chasten. Those whom I love, I reprove, I reprove and chasten. And so he says, be zealous, be zealous and repent. The word zealous here is in the ongoing present tense. And it means to get really serious about, about me and repent. Repentance being a decisive action. Do it all at once and do it now, he's saying. Be zealous and repent. Why? Because I love you, he says. This is why he rebukes and chastens the lukewarm and the half-committed person. It's not out of anger. It's, you know, that he says, stop doing this, stop sinning, stop doing wrong, stop coming up short. He's, he tells them out of love. He, he, he tells them to do this because he loves them. Friends, a person who loves you will tell you the truth. People must know they are doing wrong in order to correct their behavior. They must know that judgment lies ahead so they can do what's needed to be prepared. Honestly, the reason that God rebukes us, the reason that God disciplines us, the reason that God chastens us is for one purpose and one purpose only, God loves you. That's it. He loves you. And he wants us to see our wrong and make the correct change in our behavior. He wants people to possess the fullness of life and the hope of eternal life. It's like the parent about to discipline their children. And this was brought up last Sunday morning in Sunday school. I'm doing this because I love you. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Parents are simply really reflecting what Christ is saying here. That's why Jesus said, be zealous 
and repent. Burn with zeal. Burn with sincerity. Burn with earnestness in repenting. It means burn a path to repentance. Get, the matter of, get to the matter of repenting immediately. In other words, get right with God and get right with, get right with God now and stay right with God. Make up your mind, he's saying. Choose ye this day whom you're going to serve. If, if God be God, serve God. And now, how long will you waver between two opinions? And so I always say this, repentance is good. Repentance is wonderful. It's biblical. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And then we have verse 20 being one of the most beautiful verses in all Scripture. Jesus said this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, we use this as a salvation text. You know, God's knocking on the door of your heart. You know, open the door. You know, he's not going to force his way in. We, we kind of use that, and, 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 and it can be used as that, but, but really this, this picture here shows Christ standing at the door of our hearts and asking entrance into our lives. The original context, though, this is written to a group of Christians, and it's to Christians that the Lord is speaking this word. Behold, I'm standing at the door, and I'm knocking. When we realize this is being written to Christians, we notice immediately some characteristics of Christ at the door of our life. And I have three of them in parentheses for you there. Shame, surprise, and supper. First of all, shame. The first thing I notice is the shame of his being outside. Have you ever wondered how in the world does the Lord get excommunicated from his church and he's on the outside of the church instead of the inside? I mean, here's the church going about its affairs as usual, and the Lord saying, guys, I'd like to be back in, you know, knock, open the door, I'm knocking. Or how do we become in our own individual lives so busy about our own priorities that the Lord finally has to say, don't you realize it's me on the outside? You have so limited me to the outside edge of your life that for a while you had me pressed against the wall, and there is no room for me, and I had to slip outside. Now, would you realize I'm on the outside and I really want to be brought back in? So there's a shame, really, of his being excluded from our lives that we would still name ourselves Christians but have missed the dimensions of what's involved, really, in being a Christian and being a follower of Christ. So there's a shame. Number two is a surprise. The second thing I notice about Christ standing at the door is really the surprise that he's still there. If we were to translate this verse literally, it would read something like this. See, I have taken my stand at your door, and I am continually knocking. The nature of Jesus honestly defies our imagination. Suppose tonight or this weekend you went to someone's home to visit them. Maybe a friend that you really loved or some relation or whatever, and you knocked on their door, and they said, come on in, and you sit down, and they just go about their business. And in the hours that you are there, not once do they look over to you. Not once do they say a word. They're busy watching TV. And you're going, man, I'm not coming to this place again. And after a few hours and no word spoken to you, you say, well, that's the last time I'm going there. They treat me like this? No way. 
I'll go to my own house, and when they're ready to make up, they can call me. You know, you'd probably say that a little more steam than what I just said it, but how humble the Lord is in having been put out of the house that he belongs in. He takes his place at the door, and he says, I'm knocking. You don't have to come to me. He says, I'm coming to you. Now, the Lord's not going to pound on the door to break it in. There was an artist that, 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 that uh, painted this picture years ago, and I forgot his name. You can look it up. And, and on the door, there is no handle to let him in. And you'll see that in the painting. Why is that? Some say, hey, you made a mistake in your painting. He says, no, no. He says, those on the inside must allow him, must open the door for him, allow him to come in. So there's this incredible surprise that he's even there. And, and the example of his humility, and, and that she says, you hurt me, you've ignored me, you've wounded me, but I'm still there, and I, I'd, like my, I'd like back in, please. A great a Jewish scholar said this, the one thing that no Jewish prophet or Jewish rabbi has ever conceived of is the conception of God actually going out in quest of sinful men who are not seeking him, but who were turned away from him. Now, it'd be great to think of a God who accepted us back when we came to him. It's almost beyond belief to think of a God who goes out and searches and stands and knocks at the door of our hearts. So there is this surprise, there's shame, there's surprise. But then there's supper. I want you to get this. There is the supper that he wants to eat. If any man will open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him. Sup is shortened for the word supper. And that's the meal the Lord wants to have with us. Back in the ancient times when this letter was written, there were three meals to the day. There was like our breakfast back then, and they were eating, they were, it was eaten in a hurry, kind of our equivalent today to orange juice and donuts or coffee and donuts. And just kind of, it's a little, it's not a lot, but it's there. Then there was lunch, which was a picnic snack, which was taken along and eaten somewhere in the middle of the day, kind of like in the colonnade or the city square. It was a meal eaten in passing, eaten in a hurry. Then there was the main meal, the day of the day, and that was supper when one ate and one lingered and one talked and one fellowshiped. In the, in the days before TV and radio and Internet, that was a great thing. We used to have in our homes, we used to have in our homes the, the supper meal, and we would, took, we would talk and we would fellowship. Nowadays, how many meals are actually in a family actually are sat, you're sitting down and you're eating together and you're discussing together. You know, we have our cell phones going and, and this and that and everything else. But the Lord is saying, that's the meal that I want to be a part of. I want to be in, in your fellowship once again. And he says, if you'll open the door, I will come eat uh, and, and eat with you. And that is, as the Lord comes in, we will offer to him what we have. But then he turns the tables for not only does the Lord say he'll eat with us, but then he says that we will eat with him. Verse 20 says very specifically, I will come in and eat with him. But then he changes it and says, and he will eat with me. The Lord says, I will also provide for the table. What is lacking, I will make up. So not only will I eat from my host bounty, but my host will eat from my bounty. And then Jesus ends this letter by saying in Revelation chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, the church which Christ threatened to spew out of his mouth is now offered a seat with him on his throne. The highest place is within reach of the lowliest. And that's why Jesus says, those who have an ear, let him hear. Let him hear. We may miss his knocking, so the Lord calls us to respond. And he says, guys, please open. He says, I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking. It's up to you now. You see, Christ's final words to the church in Laodicea are once again another wonderful demonstration of his love, of his grace, and of his mercy. After exercising restraint, after disciplining them, rather than rendering sudden judgment, Jesus stations himself outside the church door and knocks repeatedly, waiting for anyone to respond. Though he has warned them severely, and he is true, and he will carry those things out, though he has warned them severely, his real desire is not to spit them out of his mouth, but to sup dine and fellowship with them. He is seeking a restoration of fellowship with his church. He won't force the door open. You must invite him in. But notice, he knocks first before we respond, but we must respond. If we refuse to answer his knocking at our door, there's coming a time when he will refuse to answer our knocking at his door hereafter. And guess what? We have no idea how long he'll be knocking. My admonition, therefore, is answer the door. Open the door. Because there is coming a day when he will no longer be knocking. We are still living in a day of grace, a day of mercy. And he is still knocking. Are you answering? The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, see, now is the time for repentance because once God has spoken to you through his word, how you respond is crucial. In other words, now, once he speaks to you, you must now adjust your life to the truth. How do we do that? Well, you agree with the truth. Yes, Lord, I'm lukewarm. Yes, Lord, I'm cold. You know, you see, if I don't have a love relationship with Jesus, the passion is gone. If I'm not boiling over, the fire is burning lower, it's gone out. And yes, I know that Jesus said to the lukewarm that he will spit them out of his mouth. And so what what am I doing? I'm, I'm saying you simply agree that the truth applies to you and that you're going to do something about this. What is this? This is simply called confession of sin. Confession of sin. This is where you agree with God about your sin. Now, notice also, Jesus wouldn't tell his church, his bride, to repent if if it wasn't sin. So it's sin. But that's not all you must do. Agreeing with God is not enough. Now you must make the necessary adjustments to your life as Jesus is saying to this church, I would that you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, he is wanting us, the body of Christ, the church, he is wanting us to remain hot. I think a good verse to pray would be Psalm 139, 
23, 24, search me, God, and know my heart. Why? Because we don't know our own hearts. We can say, I am rich, I'm wealthy, I'm in need of nothing. We don't, we don't know our true condition. Only God knows our hearts. And so God, search me, know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. And then he goes on and says, see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me. God, lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, Lord, I'm opening the door. I'm going to go back to having fellowship with you. That's the key here. That's the key. Now, this ends the seven churches. Next week, we are going to get into then a new section, and that is Revelation 4, Revelation 4 and 5, talking about the throne. And what I'm going to do next week is, is talk about uh, verse 1 of, of Revelation 4, and we'll see how far we get. But I really want to talk about uh, some things that support the pre-tribulation rapture view. We'll get into mid and post a little bit, but we're going to talk about uh, some reasons that support the pre-tribulation rapture view. And just this past Thursday, I told you about this a while back, I record every week and watch Joel uh, Rosenberg, TBN. And Joel Rosenberg's uh, program last Thursday night was very, very good. Uh, do you watch it? And I want to I wanna, I wanna try... I, I, can't, I watched it. It's like, don't erase this one because it's so good. I want to get it on DVD so I can show you part of it. But the whole program, like 20 minutes, is on, you know, do, do we believe that we are living in the end days? 39% of all Americans believe that we are living in the last days, according to a latest report, a latest poll. 39% believe we're living in the last days. And then the number of of various uh, uh, Republicans versus Democrats, um, African Americans, where they stand. I mean, it's just powerful. Some of the stats he shared and what that means for us. Um, but, I, but I remind us, we've been living in the last days since the time of Christ. And so that being true, biblical, we are in the last of the last days. And so I'm going to try my best in the next week to, to get this off of my DVR onto a DVD. All right, easier said than done. I have the capability to do that, Justin. I have the capability of doing that, but it's been so long that I've kind of forgot how to do that, and so we'll, we'll figure that out. Hopefully, if not, I'll take some good notes and share some of these stats with you. I went online today saying, can I just watch it off a line, and then you got to sign up for TBN, whatever, and it's like, I don't want to. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of memorizing passwords and creating new accounts for things. And the older you get, the worse it gets. Because <laughs> I have so many passwords that, wow, I, I don't want to go there. But anyway, so we're going to jump into, uh, we're, gonna go, we're done with the churches. We're going to go into then uh, heaven, the throne, in, in, five, in four and five, but then get into the, the judgments and the tribulation things that are going to be happening as well. And so we'll talk more about that next week. I've said enough. It's past my time. You're dismissed. God bless you all. If you're cold or lukewarm, do something about it, and that is repent. Repent. God bless you all.